The Mentors. This is Vadim. And Sergey. And you're listening to our third and final segment of the Sales for Founders series where we talk about going for the close. You know, when you said final, it made it seem like it'll be done forever. Well, first of all, you can always go back and listen to it again if you so choose. It's evergreen. (laughs) It was evergreen content. Secondly, listen... Write to us, mail, carrier pigeon, whatever you need to do to get to us. If there is a topic when it relates to sales that we do not cover in these three parts, let us know and we'll be happy to do so. Obviously, we've done sales training sessions for other entrepreneurs that have been several hours long. We're covering these three episodes in just three 30-minute sessions. So we could go into much more detail with any of these topics and we probably will at some point, but for this particular series, this is unfortunately, sadly, the last in the series. But it makes sense. We're talking about the close, the most important part of the sale, the one thing that matters if you want to generate revenue and, quite frankly, to stay in business. Closing is hard, bruh. And sis, uh, it is really hard. And. You know, we, we don't want to diminish the fact that it is hard and it doesn't come naturally for most people. A lot of the things that we talk on the show about entrepreneurship don't come naturally. And closing is one of those things. I mean, think about it. We've talked about how to network like a pickup artist and the, the parallels between dating and networking. Same thing. It, it's hard to make the approach. It's hard to make the ask. Same thing about asking for the close. But we're going to make it a little bit easier. Also, by the way, there are plenty of sales professionals that suck at closing deals. There's a lot of different sales jobs. Some sales jobs depend on existing relationships. So maybe they have a book of business that they're going into and they're just maintaining existing relationships. Maybe the company doesn't do a good job of tracking the progress of each particular sale. That usually doesn't happen in a successful sales organization. But even sales professionals sometimes aren't very good at the actual closing part. This is what we're going to talk about. The last few episodes, we talked about the early stage of the process how to generate initial interest and get meetings. But now we're going to talk about the actual meeting itself and going for the close. Super exciting when you get the meeting, but that's where the real work begins when you actually get the meeting. And it's awesome. Actually, I see founders all the time, like first time founders, they get elated. They'll get a meeting with a huge brand and they will go in and we'll start prepping and they realize they're not prepared and they get scared. And then I have to bring them back down and show them that it's not that intimidating. But that's what we're going to do together with you today. Try not to get intimidated. One way to reduce that stress or remove it is to remember that there's probably more than just one lead you're going after. If it's a big enough market opportunity, there's going to be at least 100, let's say, potential target leads, if not thousands and thousands of leads, depending on the sales cycle, again, size of deal and all that good stuff. But no one meeting, typically, is do or die. Even if you mess this one up, take it as a learning opportunity and Make sure that the next one is more successful. So you got the meeting. Let's say it's happening this Friday. Let's talk about some of the foundational or fundamental principles that you need to understand in order for the meeting to be successful. Basically, we want to empower you to structure that meeting in a way that is going to maximize that the outcome is what you want it to be, which is getting closer to a close. So the first half of this episode is going to be focused on essentially those sales fundamentals that we communicate to the founders and entrepreneurs that we already work with. And then the second half of the conversation is going to be more tactical. But how do you actually do a bunch of this stuff? And of course, we're going to talk about exactly how you can go for the close. 
Where possible, as usual, we're going to include specific examples from stories in our own experience of either selling or being sold to. So let's get started. You have a meeting this Friday. What is the very first thing you do? For me, I like to be prepared for all contingencies. So my first step of the process is always doing deep research. When I say deep, I don't mean hours and hours of research, but set aside at least half hour to understand what the company is, what their motivations are, going on their website, seeing the kind of language they use, who they might be hiring for, going into the specific profiles, like let's say LinkedIn profiles or finding bios of the people that you're meeting. It may sound like, okay, like why do all of this prep work? We don't really know if it where it's gonna go. Like how do you know which parts to prep? I'm just talking about being well-rounded enough about the people and the company that you're meeting so that regardless of where the conversation goes, you are educated, you understand their perspective as much as possible, and you can actually continue the conversation. We talked about how in sales, when you do cold calls, the hardest thing is keeping the conversation going. Same thing in meetings. If you actually are in a situation where you're hopefully going to close a deal in that meeting, you have to be as prepared as possible with even the basic information about the company and more importantly, the people that you're going to be talking to. And they're going to notice if you come into the meeting and it sounds like you're well-educated about their business, it will come off as if you care. Well, actually, you do care because you actually spent the time doing that research. So that does matter. Even information that might not seem that important while you're researching might end up coming up. The other thing to mention is think about the objections ahead of time. That's called objection handling. And of course, as you take on more and more of these sales meetings, you'll start to see patterns of what things come up, what objections come up throughout the sales process so that you know exactly how to answer that question next time it comes up. But even before your very first sales meeting, sit down with your co-founder or an advisor or somebody that you trust and talk through them about your product and your pitch and see what potential objections might come up and how you would handle it. Think about a presidential nominee going into a debate, right? When they do poorly, right? When a debater does poorly, typically it's because they're not prepared and the another debater pokes hole into their ideas or their policy ideas. But then next time, hopefully in the second debate, they come back ready to answer all those questions because they sat there and they practiced it with their staffers. You're doing the exact same thing. Yeah, I do actually regular role-playing sessions with founders that I work with for this one particular reason. And if you think about it, even if you're really smart, right, and you know your product inside out, and you even know the objections that are coming, if you don't practice what actually comes out of your mouth, how you actually handle the objection, the words that you say, in the moment, it's very easy to be flustered and say the wrong things or not sound confident or forget how you handle that objection. So practicing it ahead of time, even with just your co-founder or partner or boyfriend or whatever, can really help you in the moment handle it in the best possible way. Okay, so you did all the preparation, you're ready to go, you practiced your demonstration, whatever it is. Now you're going into the meeting, you come in, they're happy to see you, hopefully they didn't cancel. (laughs) Hi, yes, I'm here to see Mrs. Johnson. Oh yeah, Mrs. Johnson's not here right now, please come back another day. Uh... See, beforehand, you should have (laughs) confirmed that the meeting is happening. Uh, So step one, confirm that the meeting is happening ahead of time. If you need to send reminders, do that. You'd be surprised, especially for phone meetings. People forget to put it on their calendars all the time. Things come up as well. They don't prioritize it. So do that extra step to make sure that you don't show up to a meeting and then only to have to turn around and go back home. But, you, you know, you get into the meeting, you're actually going into the boardroom or whatever, or you're just sitting one-on-one in somebody's office, they offer you coffee, and then what? 
That's oftentimes the scariest part. Those first few minutes of the conversation, of the selling conversation, how do I make sure that they're not awkward? And then how do I make sure I actually transition them to a selling conversation? So in the beginning, I mean, look, you're, again, we always say this, you're building a relationship with another human being. This might be the first time you're ever meeting face-to-face. Do spend some time building a little bit of rapport. It doesn't have to be half hour, although some salespeople will spend most of their time shooting the shit, so to speak, and building rapport. But there's a reason for that. It's because it's actually a crucial part of the deal. They have to trust you in order to make the purchase. So right off the bat, have something better to go to build rapport. We're not going to go into this too much detail. We could actually do a whole episode about this. But try to find some common ground when you've done some research ahead of time about them. You looked at their LinkedIn. Maybe you know something about their alma mater, the school they went to, or another company they worked at, or a sports team that they may have posted about on Twitter. Find some common ground. Bring it up. Mention it. It will, at the very least, reduce the tension in the room ahead of time. Exactly. And do what's natural for you. Like if sports, if you don't know anything about sports, like for me, for example, I know minimal about sports. I'm not going to get in a sports conversation with a prospect because I know that's going to be a losing battle. They're going to know it's fake. They're going to know I'm being fake immediately. So you can start with really easy things. Like again, Vadim talked about, you did the preparation, you looked through the information. Maybe you saw that that she transitioned from IT to sales engineering over the last three years. And you ask her, oh, why did you decide to move on from IT? And then that becomes an open-ended question. It opens up for conversation. She gets to reveal to her her motivations, her interests, her desires. Already she feels like you care about her. And there's a higher chance that there's going to be a good relationship there through that rapport where you can actually have a chance to sell something. Now, quick caveat, the advice that we're giving is primarily for the American audience. We know that these things can differ from culture to culture, right? Uh, Some things might be socially acceptable and others might not. Here in the States, building rapport is pretty common practice. But still, you might meet with somebody that is all business. They don't want their time wasted and they only schedule 30 or 45 minutes for this meeting and they will literally tell you, okay, let's just get straight to the point. So be ready for that potentially. But what happens when you when somebody says that to you, Sergey? Yeah, well, if that happens to me, I go with it. I don't try to force continuing to be social and build rapport. I will start to go into it because I realize that they're busy. But let's talk about one of the biggest foundational things that you need to do close to the beginning of any selling relationship if you're going to have a chance for going for the close. And that is identifying the needs. Or in other words, some salespeople call it needs analysis. Actually, sometimes in customer relationship management software like Salesforce, there's literally a needs analysis box that a salesperson has to check that they did with every single meeting, whether it's a call or an in-person meeting. So that's the first absolute thing you need to do before you can actually go for the close. You need to understand, do they have a pain or a need that your product or service can fill? The reason for that is because if the person themselves communicates the need to you, only then can you present your solution as something that would be beneficial to them. If you just try to force features to them, list everything under the sun that you think could be helpful, you're probably ignoring the one thing that's important to them that could actually help you close the deal. And oftentimes, actually, that's why you do the needs analysis is to make sure that you're saving everybody time and to make sure that whatever value you are communicating about your product or service is directly relevant to that need. So I think one way to help communicate how needs analysis can be done is actually through a story. And Sergey, you have a specific one with your former boss at a company called Edhance. 
Yes, I was a very green, very junior salesperson. I think I had been doing sales full time for maybe eight months or so at this point. And we had just hired this new guy and uh, he was the guy that was gonna save our company. <laughs> and he was a professional salesperson and marketer. Had his own agency that was worth millions of dollars. And I remember the first time I sat in with him on a sales call, and it was actually the first time I sat in on a call with any sort of sales leader that had a lot of experience. And I was kind of nervous, even though I didn't, I knew I wouldn't have to participate so much in the call. I was a little nervous for him sitting in there. He was talking to an executive at Gap. He did happen to know her and have done work with her before, but nonetheless, to me, it was like a really big person that he was uh, talking to over the phone. And I just remember how relaxed he was and how relaxed the words that are coming out of his mouth were. And all he said was he he kind of shot the shit with her a little bit and asked her what he, she was up to, how everything's been going, how's the family, etc. And then he said. Listen, Janet, I have no idea what her name is, but let's assume it's Janet, um, executive at Gap. Listen, Janet, uh, so as you know, we have a student discount program. We can do youth marketing and reach millions of students at any given point in time. But I don't want to talk about what we do. I want you to tell me what are your priorities right now? Are you trying to reach the youth market? What have you done? And what are you guys trying to get done right now that you can't do by yourself? Now, mind you, he didn't just say what are your priorities too broadly, he kept it within the constraint of specifically when reaching students. Do you even care about reaching students? Because that is actually fundamentally the value that we provide. Yeah, and so he basically asked her, how can we help you? Now, someone might push back and say, well, I don't know how you can help me, you tell me. And you might, again, reveal a little bit of information, but then dig deeper about what have they tried? What are they trying to do? Are they even trying to reach the youth market, right? I mean, if they're not, then the conversation is going to die and you're not going to make a sale happen. And you shouldn't. You should walk away and go talk to the next prospect. But that's part of the needs analysis is understanding what have they tried? What has worked? What hasn't worked? What is frustrating to her in her day-to-day life in trying to accomplish her goals? What are her top priorities and goals based on the sort of narrow structure of the conversation that you're doing, which is marketing to students? And then hopefully a pain will come out that you can tackle. So if you haven't noticed, a lot of sales is actually asking questions, right? And that's the fundamental test that any really junior salesperson gets during a sales interview is, you know, sell me this pen, which actually most people hate nowadays. But uh, when you go through a role-playing scenario, they're testing to see if you have the understanding that you should be trying to find out as much as possible about the other side. So this needs analysis section is actually having a conversation, but also asking questions to get to the truth. Uh, The same thing as you're going through this discussion and as you're essentially trying to communicate the value, before you can communicate the value, you have to confirm what the pain is and hopefully get the prospective customer to confirm that pain. So a few broad general ways you can ask questions to do that is, but once you're talking about something specific, ask them, how do you currently do X, right? So how are they currently solving the problem? How much time do you currently spend on Y, right? Is this an onerous thing or do you have a lot of resources committed to this? What would happen if, and then maybe talk about some potential negative outcome, right? What would happen if the worst possible case scenario happened? Would that negatively impact your business, right? Now, these are some broad questions. So here's a more specific example. When we had a product tacit, we sold to salespeople. And specifically, when we sold more top down, in other words, when we sold to the VPs of sales, we knew exactly where to take the conversation to help get to the pain. Now, the pain started at the bottom. First of all, the sales reps oftentimes didn't like filling out data in the CRM and the customer relationship management software they were using. So then if your sales reps aren't filling out the data, 
if that's true, what else is true? Uh, well, if the salespeople aren't filling out the data, then the data is not accurate at all in the systems. Well, the VPs of sales we found out through several sales conversations would have to use the data that's in the system to forecast up to the CEO. Once we discovered that, identifying the pain was really easy because we would just ask, what happens when your salespeople aren't filling in the data accurately? Well, when I have my weekly meeting with the CEO, the data's not right, and the decisions that we make strategically about how to use the money that we make in the revenue, how to deploy that capital that we're creating in the company is not accurate. We can't budget accordingly, right? That's a really big pain we would identify in those meetings just by asking questions about the practices of their sales reps and their check-in meetings with their CEOs. Now, you might say, well, of course, if the pain is so obvious, then they know the pain is there. What's the point of asking? The point is that if they verbalize the pain to you, then that gives you an opportunity to sell, but it also makes them feel the pain and it makes them want to alleviate that pain more urgently. And so you want to make them feel it now, not last month, not next week when they're meeting with their CEO, but now put them in the shoes of feeling that pain if you're going to have a chance at closing them later in the meeting. So a lot of first-time salespeople don't realize that a lot of sales is not just pitching. You are having a conversation. And so the other side needs to talk because you need to discover things about them, right? Learn what their priorities are. And there is actually sales software now that tracks calls. And if you, the salesperson, is talking more than 50% of the time, then you get flagged, right? Because in theory, the customer should be talking at least half the time. Now, I don't know what the actual best practices are in terms of number of time exactly that the meeting should be allocated towards the customer talking. But as you can see, it's clearly pretty important. You're certainly not talking 90% of the time. You're not just pitching at them. You're figuring out what they need and hopefully your product or service can alleviate that pain. Now, once you've identified that need, you've done that foundational thing, the next thing you need to do is actually confirm that there's a budget for it. Guess what? If that person just communicated that pain to you verbally, then it becomes much easier to ask about budget because you can say, how much are you losing, let's say, in revenue? You just told me this pain is true or you just told me you experienced this. How does this negatively impact you? Do you lose money? Do you make less money? What is it? And you can always bring that back to them and say, since you told me this, then is the following true, right? And that helps you close the deal. I just mentioned the other important thing to do during the conversation is actually establish whether there's budget. Don't assume. Sometimes the budget isn't there. Sometimes it's it's not there until a certain period of time. Maybe next quarter they'll be able to spend. Maybe they buy software only in the beginning of the year or the end of the year. So you have to confirm that to know whether you can actually close them today or tomorrow. And sometimes you're talking to the wrong person and they don't know what the answer is. They might bullshit you actually and, and pretend like they know what the answer is just to get you off the phone or get you out of the meeting. But yeah, oftentimes you might not be asking the right person. And that's another thing that you should be confirming in the meeting, and it could be done during the needs analysis process as well, is making sure that you're talking to the right people. In other words, asking questions about who the decision maker is. One way to ask that is to say, does anybody else need to be involved in this meeting? Or is anybody else typically involved in making decisions like this in the company? Uh, So understanding who the actual decision maker is who can write the check, understanding who the other stakeholders are or influencers that might be your champions within the company to make sure the deal gets closed because they're actually going to benefit from whatever it is you're offering. And also figuring out who the saboteurs are. In other words, who are the people in the company that might sabotage the deal, try to prevent it from happening. 
That does happen from time to time. You might be selling a solution that improves productivity and that means somebody's workload is gonna be taken away and they think they can already solve that problem themselves through time, right? That person might not want you to close that deal. So you have to identify all these different people and make sure that you're not wasting time. Yeah, and and the more complex the sales process is, if it's a longer sales cycle where it's more expensive and you have to convince more people, that means that you might be selling to different people multiple times. You might be in three, four, five, ten meetings with ten different people. If you can get them in the same room at the same time, great. But you always managing these different relationships to make sure you're appeasing all the concerns of the different people because sometimes that saboteur is also the influencer that the CEO or the VP or whoever is going to listen to and defer the decision to them. So you have to keep a pulse on that. That's your job as a sales professional or as a founder. So let's say that you have determined who the decision maker is and you want to actually confirm that there's budget. How do you ask, what are some questions that you ask to confirm whether there's budget? Well, of course, the easiest thing to do is just to say, this is how much it costs. Can you give me your credit card right now? And if they, if they do, then there's the budget. Uh, it depends what the cost is, right? Sometimes you're asking for things that are more expensive. They can't just pay with a credit card. So one way is to ask, how much have you spent on similar solutions? Or uh, tell me about a time where this didn't work. How much did that cost you? Or how much do you spend on, let's say if you're selling a software product, how much do you spend in total on software per year, right? Or... How much do you lose per month without a current solution, right? So there's all these ways to getting to a number. Another one, which is a little bit more positive, how much additional revenue do you think you could make if you invest in this product? Or if you had three additional, let's say if it's a marketing software, which I sold before, if you had three additional leads this week and you closed one lead every single week, how much additional revenue would that bring in? And then they start thinking about the math, So then it becomes really easy to back into a number that makes sense for them. So let's say you're generating another $30,000 worth of revenue for that business. It might be worth spending four or $5,000 in advertising to make $30,000 in revenue. So you do have to talk about the numbers, either how much revenue you're making them or how much money you're saving them to help justify whatever price or cost you're going to throw out about your solution. Yeah. And the easiest thing to ask is, what do I need to know? about your typical buying process so I can make sure this is as smooth as possible for you. And then you get them to tell a story about how they may have bought something in the past or what hurdles you might have to pass in order to actually close the deal. So speaking of the close, that is the hardest thing to do. You may have confirmed that there's a need. You may have confirmed a budget. They love you. You have built the rapport. You're great. How do you actually close the deal? So first off, again, something that especially first-time salespeople, just don't do. They'll do the hard work of doing the lead generation. They'll do the hard work of getting interest, getting into the meeting, running the meeting, doing the needs analysis, and then they don't go for the close. They don't even ask. Why? Well, it it is actually pretty painful to do. It's actually pretty scary. But... You just have to do it. It's kind of like ripping off the band-aid. I mean, some companies, like the bigger the company, sometimes they separate these roles, right? Like a sales development rep, SDR, will be the one that is generating leads and even doing the needs analysis and qualification, as we call it in sales. And then an account executive is actually doing the closing. So you might separate it like that, where you'll have professional you know, qualifiers and professional closers. Yeah. But initially, you'll need to learn how to do that end-to-end. Right. This is why this is called Sales for Founders. When I was a sales engineer... I did the demonstration and then the VP of sales would come in and do the close. Now, oftentimes the deal would still close before the VP of sales came in because I already got the buy-in through the demonstration and the needs analysis I was doing. But 
if they had to get into the details of contract negotiations, I would just send him in. So yeah, roles can be separated. But as a founder, you got to do the whole thing. So some closing tactics then, because I know you're dying to hear what you can actually say to close someone, right? You can't just say, let's close. I mean, you could, I guess, and see how that goes. Let's close this deal, let's baby. This, baby. Let's get excited. Let's do it. But um, we just sounded <laughs> like such douches. I, I can tell. We're not. Uh, hopefully you know this by now. No. Uh, but okay, so there's a couple of different ways that you can actually get a close to happen. Honestly, the most surefire way is if the need is big enough, their pain is high enough, their hair is on fire, so to speak, they will buy from you. It won't be that hard to actually close just because they want it now. They need it yesterday. They'll probably figure out themselves how to pay you. But oftentimes you need a little bit of cajoling to actually get somebody through the door, get them to sign in the dotted line. So one way to do that is to create urgency meaning a reason that the deal needs to happen now and not at a later point in time. So when I was selling that product for Yodel, we would constantly have ways of creating urgency, specifically at the end of the month when you had to hit your quota, right? We would have exploding offers. We would have deals. In other words, uh, throw, you know, sweeten the deal type of things that we would follow up with and say, hey, if you can make the purchase before the end of the day, today our billing cycle ends or our quarterly cycle ends and whatever the excuse was at the time. And uh, we can make sure that you get in on this deal, right? This doesn't always work, but it was relatively effective in getting a bunch of people that were kind of an offense to cross the finish line. I mean, I'll actually give you an example of when this worked on me last year. At my work, I was looking for software to be able to track sort of almost like a customer relationship management software, but for our own purposes, tracking the work that we do with founders. And I found this one particular piece of software that does this really well. And I had a couple of calls with a salesperson. They've done demonstrations already to to my team. My team liked the product. They still had a couple of questions here or there. We had actually been on a trial for a month. We asked him to extend it another month. And I I could tell that he was getting a little impatient that we're, you know, kicking the tires. Are we actually going to buy or not? And so he did something really smart. He asked me, you know, what the barrier was as far as cost go. We are nonprofit. So there was an actual cost barrier. And I told him what it was. And he came back. A couple days later saying, listen, Sergey, I got my CEO to agree to give you this deal because we want to work with universities like yours. So we were making an exception for you, but it needs to close this week. We can't be extending the trial anymore. And because he did me a solid and he actually did get me a good deal, I went to my boss and I was like, look, this is the best deal we're going to get, but we have to sign it this week. I mean, I felt that basically I wanted to do him a favor because he did me a favor putting his neck on the line, talking to his boss. Now, I don't know what actually happened behind the scenes. Maybe they were going to give us the discount the entire time, but I didn't really care at that point. Based on other products, the cost was fair. And because he did me a solid, that urgency ended up working and I ended up pushing it up the chain and the deal did close. So urgency could be a very effective way to get somebody to close the deal or commit to the close. Another way is creating scarcity. Now, this is actually a tool that especially early stage founders can use because the company that you're talking to typically knows that you're a young company and you have limited resources, limited bandwidth. What you can do is you can say, you know, we're launching a pilot now with three customers in New York City and we already have two committed. We have space for one more. But uh, we're allocating our resources for the next three months for the implementation cycle for the setup or whatever it is right now. And uh, we need to make the decision in the next week, right? They are created scarcity by basically saying, we want to make sure to get you in on this cycle, but time is running out. 
And we have other partners that are interested. Yeah, and closely related to scarcity is fear of missing out. And you might use a similar tactic, but you know, instead of saying we're doing three deals right now and we're deciding who we're working with in the next week, so you got to commit now, you can say that we're only working with a, a few companies in your industry, or you even sometimes can name drop a competitor or just say we're working with one of your major competitors. I can't disclose the name because of non-disclosure agreements, but we're working with them right now and we're only going to be working with one or two more of those. And you don't even have to actually sometimes even say you're going to be only working with one or two. Just the knowledge of the fact that you're working with their competitor makes sometimes companies and people in the companies feel like they're going to miss out on this like trend that people are signing up on and maybe I need to sign up for it too. Now, we don't recommend that you flat out lie about this stuff. Hopefully, you're actually building your sales pipeline and you are starting to generate enough interest where you do have limited resources, right? You're not flat out lying. If they were to do some digging, and especially if you're name dropping, you have to be able to back it up. But that's where another useful tactic is if you can't close the deal, especially as an early stage founder, get a letter of intent. Get them to commit on paper that they're intending to invest in your product because then you can use that as leverage to close other deals. But we know that you can't always get a close in the meeting that you want to get a close in or in the first meeting, right? Oftentimes, it does take several at-bats with the same customer or if it's a longer sales cycle game, conversations with a bunch of different stakeholders. So then the other way you should close the meeting that will increase the chances of closing the deal is to make sure you have the next steps very clearly defined and that you follow up consistently after that. So what does it mean to have the next steps clearly defined, Sergey? So whatever things that they need, being explicit or making the customer be explicit about what they need from you to move forward, understanding who else needs to partake in the decision on their end and assigning direct responsibility, especially those people in a room. Okay, I need to do a demo with your VP. Great. Uh, can I get on the calendar with you next week? Sounds good. Or can you, you know, make the introduction yeah. to me? And then following up with them if they haven't made the introduction because you got them to commit at the end of that uh, conversation with next steps. Yeah, controlling the sale. And controlling the sale is all about specifics. Knowing the dates, knowing what needs to be executed, doing your part, and ultimately that'll help you then close the deal. And then, of course, if you can be specific and define the timeline there, don't just say, okay, I'll follow up with you. Say, I'll follow up with you by Thursday. And when can I expect to hear from you, right? Make sure the timeline's set. Or we need to have three more meetings with three stakeholders. Let's do that in the next three weeks so that by week four, if you guys are still interested, we can start the setup and implementation process. So now you're actually creating a timeline for them that's harder to break. You see, a lot of salespeople, they feel like once somebody communicates the need, it's on them to say, I want to buy, or it's on them to set the direction, but it's never on them. People have different priorities. They may have somebody else, they may have competitors literally pitching against you, or they just might be busy. And so as the salesperson, you increase your chances of closing the deal significantly if you control the sale, make sure there's next steps, and then you're incredibly diligent with following up after the meeting. Most sales happen within eight or nine follow-ups after the initial meeting. In other words, a lot of salespeople give up too early. If you only follow up once or twice and somebody starts responding, you might be missing an opportunity. So make sure you do the follow-up. So that's it for our three-part series, Sales for Founders. Hopefully you guys are all ready to go and close some deals. 
I mean, this takes practice. If you don't close deals immediately, don't get discouraged. You're going to get better the more you practice. You're going to get better at keeping all these things in your head. It kind of reminds me of improv, not to bring it back to improv. We've talked about it the last couple episodes, but... In the beginning, a lot of the things, the rules that you have to keep in mind for improv are not natural and you're just thinking of them and you're stumbling through it, but eventually they become part of you. You're not thinking about them anymore. You're just executing on them. Same exact thing with sales. The more you practice these things, the building rapport, the openers, the needs analysis, how to strategically ask for budget and go for the close, the more natural it becomes to you and you'll know exactly when to push the right buttons in order to make the deal happen. And if you're going to use any of the advice that we gave in these three episodes and you're successful, send us an email, info at thementors.co. We'd love to hear your story. And if you want, we could even feature it on a five-minute pick-me-up one of these weeks. And also, if you found anything in today's episode especially helpful, we just ask that you do one thing. Take a quick screenshot of you listening to the podcast in whatever app you use, like iTunes, and share it on Instagram stories or Facebook stories and tag us. We're at the Mentors Podcast on Instagram and tag one friend that you think might become a sales rock star. Thanks again for joining us for this week's episode of The Mentors and we'll see you next week. Bye.